Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. All right, here's my joke. What does a nosy pepper do? It gets jalapeno business. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. You just got a joke from author Mia Alvar that'll help break the ice. Her latest collection of stories is called In the Country, and we'll hear more from her later. Plus, just in time for the Tony Awards, we chat with Alison Bechdel. Yes. Last year, the stage adaptation of her graphic novel Fun Home won Best Musical. Also coming up, Fight Club author Chuck Palahniuk tells us how to change society with pranks and. If if that all sounds familiar, that's because this is an encore broadcast of a show we first aired last summer. So cast your mind back to a time when the Warriors and the Cavaliers were also playing in the NBA Finals. Come to think of it. Some things never change. That's right. When is it any party? We started with small talk. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Rehan Harmansi. She is editor-in-chief of the website Atlas Obscura, a lovely travel website. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this weekend? Um, I'm going to be talking about the future library. The Ooh. future library. where it's full of jetpacks. <laughs> where you can take out jetpacks and food pellets. Yeah, not quite. It's an art project in Norway where 100 writers are contributing 100 new works that won't be unveiled for 99 years. Wow. So it's like a time capsule kind of thing, except with books. Yes, it is. And Margaret Atwood just went to Norway to drop off her first work, the first contribution to Future Library. And we won't get to read it for 99 years. This would be great if, I mean, in Manhattan, I'm going to start pretending I'm a writer right now. (laughs) Just like, oh, no, no, I'm done my first novel, but it's in the Future Library. It's in in a vault, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. You won't see it for a while. That's how underground I am. But I imagine there aren't going to be many copies of each of these books, right? Because you you can't store them digitally because 100 years from now, probably any data format we currently use, you probably won't be able to read them. That is a really good point. Um, They've actually given some thought to this. To actually print the works, um, they have grown a small forest. Uh, not far from the library, they planted a thousand trees in which to make paper. Oh, wow. oh that they thought of the everything. Well, they thought of everything except so when you go to check out these books, it's going to be really ugly there <laughs> because they're going to chop down all the trees. It's just stumps. It's going to be this ugly post-apocalyptic <laughs> landscape. Yeah, wow. There, there's no way to rectify that wrong. Hopefully one of these future books isn't the sequel to The Lorax. <laughs> uh, that would right. be ironic. Rayhan Armancy, thanks for the small talk. Thank you so much. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our famed history lesson with booze. First, the history part. Right around this time, back in 1873, two inventors got a patent for maybe the best-known item of clothing on Earth. Adrian Hill, filling in for Michelle Philippi, tells the story of denim jeans. The most all-American of fashion statements was born in Europe. Specifically in Italy and France about 500 years ago. Back then, Italian workers from Genoa used a cotton blend fabric for their clothes. It became known around the continent as Jean, because it was from Genoa. Meanwhile, the French village of Nîmes was making their own fabric, like Jean, but tougher. The townsfolk named it after themselves. Twill from Nîmes, a.k.a. Serge de Nîmes, later known as denim. By the 19th century, versions of both fabrics were made in America, but used in totally different kinds of work clothes. Jean, in outfits for office workers, tougher denim for manual laborers. 
but it took a Nevada tailor named Jacob Davis to make denim the fabric choice for everyone. Jacob specialized in denim work pants, which always seemed to rip at the seam. So he used metal rivets to reinforce them, an idea he patented with financial help from a retail entrepreneur. You might have heard of him, Levi Strauss. Soon, Levi's denim waist overalls were the most popular work pants in the West. Of course, they became popular everywhere for work and play. Movies helped. Fans wanted to dress like their denim-wearing cowboy heroes. Meanwhile, jean, that other work fabric, faded in popularity. But the word didn't. People just called their waist overalls jeans. In 1960, Levi's gave in and started using the term, too. And that's how an American invention made with French fabric got an Italian name. So that was the history lesson. Now for a drink to go along with it, I am joined by Matt Grippo. He is bartender and bar manager at Blackbird, a bar in San Francisco, which is the headquarters of Levi's. Matt, you heard the history. What cocktail did it inspire you to make? So uh, the name of the cocktail is uh, California Blue Jeans. Uh, okay. Some, some emphasis on spelling there. All right, so how are you spelling it? Blue in the French spelling, E-L-E-U, and jeans, the way people would refer to the, the cloth from Genoa. All right, okay, yeah. so you're, you're, you're merging these two pieces of history just as a tailor did so many years ago. Exactly. So what's in your drink? So we start with two ounces of Cyrus Noble bourbon. It's a Kentucky bourbon with San Francisco history. How does a Kentucky bourbon have San Francisco history? It was basically a brand that was started by a grocery store who, who purchased a large amount of the bourbon from Kentucky and brought it to sell in San Francisco and Gold Rush era. I'm, I'm sure there was a healthy market for bourbon amongst the Gold Rush crowd. Pl- plenty. <laughs> Next is uh, Pierre Ferrand Dry Curacao, which is okay. a beautiful French product. Curacao oranges and cognac make for the sweetener of the cocktail. Okay, so we have curacao, and what else is in your drink? And then for, for the last ingredient is an Italian Amaro called Santa Maria from Genoa. Of course. Take all three products with fresh ice, stir for about 15 seconds, and strain over one large block of ice in a rocks glass and garnish with an orange twist. It sounds delicious. Is So aren't Dockers from San Francisco too? I, I believe Dockers. <laughs> is there, there's some history here in San Francisco. I, I wonder what kind of drink we'd end up with Dockers. It would probably be like a, like a Coors Light or something like That's that. That's something I don't want anything to do with, unfortunately. <laughs> Enrico, I did a little research, all right. and I learned that not all casual pants were invented in San Francisco. Oh, uh, in fact, jeggings were invented in hell. <laughs> And sweatpants <laughs> were created by terrorists to undermine American oh. pride and ambition. Man, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> those are just true facts. Sorry, San Francisco. People, you don't have to even put your pants on to get all our drink recipes. Mm-mm. They're at dinnerpartydownload.org. So we've made small talk, had a drink, and bashed sweatpants. Now for some music. <laughs> we've earned it. And here yeah. to play DJ is French musician Cécile Schott, a.k.a. Colleen. She's composed six albums of instrumental music featuring an ancient string instrument called the viola de gamba, layered with electronic effects. Pitchfork says her new album, Captain of None, quote, positively vibrates with melodic ideas. Here's Cécile with a chill party playlist. Hi, this is Cécile, a.k.a. Colleen. And this is my dinner party soundtrack. I'm so happy to have you again before. 
My first song is Tone Bone Cone by Arthur Russell, the really important composer, producer during the 70s and 80s. I really got into Arthur Russell's music in particular in the spring of 2010. I was still living in Paris, but getting ready to move to Spain. And I was just thinking seriously of, of getting back into making music. And I read an incredible biography and just got so inspired. He helped me decide that I was going to sing in my music. He also offered powerful proof that you can be melodic and experimental at the same time and you can use heavy effects on a classical instrument and make it sound like a totally new instrument. If I have some guests at home, I think I would want to start the evening in a very laid-back way and I think Arthur Russell's music fits the bill. My next song is a Jamaican song and it's by Big Youth and it's called Cool Breeze. Jamaican music is the music that's been most important to me over the past two years. It has the immediate effect of putting me in a really good mood and making me smile. It's like immediate. Big Youth is one of the classic Jamaican toasters. Toasting is just someone talking over a song to get a crowd excited at dance halls. So basically that's how it started. And it actually has very strong links to the birth of hip-hop. So this song is basically Big Youth toasting over an original track called Stop That Train by Keith and Tex. I think it's just, you know, amazing that different songs, you know, springing just from one song. So the third song would actually be possibly the moment when people start dancing. <laughs> so for that, I chose a song by the gay lads called Slipping and Sliding. And it's a special version that's called a discomicus version, which has nothing to do with Disco is just what the Jamaicans call its dub version. This song starts off as a very soulful, pretty laid-back number with male vocals that go impossibly high. But in the background, from the start, you can notice some kind of bubbly sounds. And after two minutes, those sounds come to the fore and the track becomes something else entirely. It's like you're stepping into a kind of sonic soup of some sort. You could dance to it, but you could also just, you know, crash on the sofa and just get lost into the sound. So I think there's something in it for everyone.
So if I really was forced to choose something from my own music, <laughs> I would choose a song called Soul Alphabet. It's kind of mix between a bass line, which probably owes a lot to Jamaican music, and then a treble viola part, which evolves throughout the song. I guess that'd be the perfect song to leave the, the guests on a happy note before they, they head back home. A dinner party soundtrack courtesy of Colleen, a.k.a. Cecile Schott. Her latest album is called Captain of None. All right, coming up, Alison Bechdel confesses about confessions mm. when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. We should let you know this is an encore broadcast of an episode we first aired last summer. It's pretty great, though. Coming up, Fight Club author Chuck Palahniuk testifies to the life-changing power of pranks. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right, that'd be Alison Bechtel. Her comic strip about lesbian culture called Dykes to Watch Out For ran in alternative newspapers around the country for 25 years. But she won mainstream acclaim with her graphic memoir, Fun Home. It was nominated for a National Book Award and last year became a Broadway musical that took home five Tonys, including Best Musical. In it, Allison tells the story of coming out to her family, after which her father admitted he too was gay. And shortly thereafter, he was hit by a truck in what she and her family consider a suicide. When I spoke to Allison last May, I suggested Fun Home wasn't the likeliest candidate for a musical. No, it doesn't. <laughs> right? I mean... I thought it was kind of crazy. I couldn't imagine what a musical would be like. But I knew the writer that they had in mind. Lisa Crone, I loved her and respected her. I feel like she and I came from the same lesbian street. We were mm -hmm. both like in the subculture for a long time. I was drawing my dykes to watch out for comics, and she was with the five lesbian brothers theater troupe. So I knew she could handle the material respectfully. You were in safe hands. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But I didn't really know much about musicals. I didn't understand, I don't think, the the risk I was running, you know, that this could end up really schlocky or mm. exploitative or, I don't know, bad. Well, it ended up being nominated for a dozen Tony Awards, so it's not bad. Uh, is there a particular part of the musical that you really enjoy? You know, it's funny. The songs are just constantly in my head. Every day I'll wake up with a different song running through my head. Uh-huh. Um, what was it today? Ring of Keys. Hmm. An audience favorite. Um, and that song in particular unfolds, uh, the, the scenario unfolds just like it did in the graphic novel. Can you explain the background for the song? It's one of my very earliest memories. In the play, we see little Allison, who's somewhere between maybe 9 and 11 years old, seeing this butch delivery woman show up at the diner where she's hanging out with her father. It was a very powerful memory for me, almost a formative or constitutive part of myself, this moment of recognizing something about me in this other woman, this like masculine-looking woman who uh, I, I felt like I, I was her. It's probably conceited to say, but I think we're alike in a certain way. Your keys, oh, your ring. 
So when I saw the musical the other night, I was seated next to these kind of this group of alpha businessmen. Oh, wow. And they had gin on their breath. No judgment there, though. <laughs> and maybe they were big fans of musical theater, and I'm stereotyping. But in my mind, I kind of assumed that since Fun Home is one of the hottest tickets in town, that uh-huh. they were entertaining clients, and an assistant got them tickets for uh-huh. this event. And yet, by the end of the show, they'd leapt to their feet oh, wow. and giving you a standing ovation. It was neat. And I was wondering what you make of this kind of mainstream acceptance of of your story. You know, I keep trying to figure it out. I mean... It's amazing to me that this has happened with my my strange little peculiar childhood tale. You know, so many people come up to me afterward and say, this is like my family. This is just like my family. And then proceed to describe a very different kind of family situation. So it's not the particulars. There's something about, I think, telling the truth that really gets to people. My family had this secret that was destructive. Mm. And in a way, I brought that secret to light, and even more destruction ensued. My father Mm -hmm. could not manage it. But in the end, I feel like it's a positive story, and it's a real story. There's there's death and loss, but it's still um, somehow a redemptive story. And I think people are hungry for that, like for real life with all of its pain. Yeah. Well, I read an interview when you were discussing, and forgive me, I'm not sure if it was about the graphic novel or watching the musical, but this idea of being raised Catholic, you enjoyed confession. Oh, yeah. And this idea of grace and how maybe telling the story properly, you thought, would give you some amount of grace. Yes. Um, I loved going to confession as a kid. I would make up sins because, you know, <laughs> what could a seven-year-old possibly do? But I loved the idea that you could be forgiven, absolved. Yeah. Uh, I remember feeling very light and free after going to confession. And I think that is what I'm always seeking when I write stuff about my life is I, I want to confess everything and, and get to that free, empty, good feeling. Well, we don't take confession here, but we do have two standard questions that we ask all of our guests. And the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? I am getting tired of being asked, what is it like to see three different versions of yourself <laughs> on stage and yes. to see your real life on stage. And I'm tired of that question, not because it's not a good question, but because I never have an answer for it. I, I yeah. feel completely <laughs> unable to answer that question. It's like, uh, yeah. uh I, <laughs> I wish I, I, I yeah. keep hoping someone will shock me into coming up with an answer, but I still have not been able to describe the very surreal experience. Well, you've, I, in a couple articles, you're called T-Rab, the real Alison Bechtel, because yeah. there are three women who play... Yeah, and I have to be differentiated. Yeah, You have a stunt double right now. I have three stunt doubles. You have three stunt doubles. You could do a whole sort of like James Bond thing. You could send her somewhere and then you could go do something else. I wish I could send them to do my interviews. (laughs) Wait, are you the real (laughs) Alison Bechtel? I was seated far back. You could actually be the actress. Uh, Well, I'm glad that the real Alison Bechtel showed up for this um, because only she can answer the second question, which is uh, tell us something we don't know something personal about you that you haven't shared in interviews, or it could just be kind of an interesting piece of trivia. I have been struggling to come up with interesting trivia, and I have failed, so I'm going to have to tell you something about myself, which is that I have pink, fluffy bath towels. Which don't really, (laughs) I wouldn't imagine you'd have those, having looked at your blog and kind of, uh, you dress 
kind of butch. Yes, that's why it's surprising. It runs counter to to our image of you. <laughs> what what is your what, where did you cultivate oh, this taste for pink fluffy? I don't know. Bath it just towels? seems like bath towels should be pink and fluffy. <laughs> I'm letting out a little of my opposite nature there. But if it was another guest telling me the color of their bath towels, I would say that's not enough. But for you, <laughs> that is revelatory. Um, thanks so much Thank for you, coming Brandon. and chatting with us. Cartoonist Allison Bechdel, who left the closet and filled it with pink fluffy towels, apparently. <laughs> that is an appropriate use of a closet. Exactly. Uh, the musical, based on Allison's graphic novel Fun Home, won the Best Musical Tony last year. We'll be watching the Tonys June 12th to see if Hamilton somehow doesn't win this year. We'll also be tweeting about it. Follow us at Dinner Party DNLD. Eavesdrop. Author Mia Alvar was twice nominated for the prestigious Pushcart Prize for Fiction. Next month, she publishes her first book of short stories. They're about the experiences of Filipino expats and immigrants, of which she was one. Today, we overhear an excerpt. Hi, my name is Mia Alvar. I'm going to be reading from my new book, In the Country. It's a collection of short stories set in the places where I grew up. So the Philippines, where I was born... Bahrain, where my family lived for a few years, an island off the coast of Saudi Arabia, and also the United States. This particular story, Shadow Families, takes place in Bahrain in a Filipino expat community there. Every weekend in Bahrain in the 1980s, we took turns throwing a party. Luz Salonga hosted the first one that September of 86, and as always, we crowded into her kitchen to help. Rowena Cruz soaked rice noodles at the sink. Rosario Ledesma threaded sweet pork onto thin bamboo sticks. Over the clatter of dishes and the crackle of oil and the smells of vinegar, soy sauce, garlic, and fermented fish settling on our clothes and skin, we laughed about children and gossiped about marriage the noise as much a comfort to us as the food itself. Soon our teenagers came downstairs, whining of boredom. We lent them the car keys and sent them off to the shopping mall for an hour or two. They returned with rented Betamax tapes and watched them upstairs, movies that the Ministry of Culture had cleaned up beforehand. There was no lobster dinner in flash dance, so far as our teens knew. No montage of oily limbs and leotards. We felt we could do worse than raise them here on this small Islamic desert island, where some women were veiled from head to toe, where cleavage and crotches were blurry bands on screen. As for our husbands, they retreated to a room where smoking was allowed and, implicitly, women and children were not. They turned on the television and spread the sports pages of the Manama Times between them. A horse track in Rifah held races every week, but gambling there was haram, of course, forbidden. They waxed authoritative about odds and breeds, trifectas and photo finishes. This was our husband's surging, primal release from the neckties and briefcases and paper-stacked desks that bound them through the week. Men who'd seemed pummeled into defeat by the office, by us wives, by bills to pay and mouths to feed, by relatives back home in the Philippines who took them for millionaires, 
Men from whom we looked away in embarrassment on weeknights when they sat on the sofa picking trouser sock lint from between their toes. These same men became brash and young again every Thursday afternoon in their improvised gambling dens. Outside the walls of Lusalonga's house, beyond the fence around her yard, past her street and the gate to the compound, lay the oil fields and the refinery that employed most of our husbands. We lived and worked in Bahrain at the pleasure of a people who mystified us. We'd arrived on their island like the itinerant father in the fairy tale about a beauty and a beast, our houses fully furnished by some unseen master. Would he reveal himself to be a prince or a monster? We decided early to behave ourselves rather than find out. In their shops and on their streets, we wore hems no higher than the knee, sleeves no shorter than the elbow, necklines that would please a nun. We lived like villagers at the foot of a volcano, hoping never to offend the gods who governed our harvest and our wealth. Author Mia Alvar, reading from her collection In the Country. It comes out June 16th, and you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now, the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. And Brendan, when I think interesting food, here's what Mm -hmm. I don't think about. Baseball stadiums. Right. Not temples of culinary invention. That's correct. (laughs) Although Cracker Jacks are pretty cool. They have the toy. But (laughs) according to Sonia Chopra, who is a writer and managing editor at the food website eater.com, ballparks are places to get increasingly fun and even occasionally quality food. True. Eater recently published her survey of the tastiest and weirdest dishes served in stadiums around the country. When I sat down to talk to her about it, she started by making this bold statement. Baseball food is the best genre of food in the history of the universe. (laughs) It's so good, and there are so many fun, weird things that people can do with it. And I think the food just over the last 10, 15 years has gotten so much better. And you can only get it, you know, for nine innings, 80 days out of the year. It's, It's amazing. All right. Well, putting aside the hyperbole. What, uh, let's talk about that. How has uh, ballpark food gotten better, in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, it's cool now. When when I was a kid, I didn't eat a lot of meat. I still don't eat a lot of meat. But when I was a kid, we would go to the games, and there would be nachos for me. You know, and it would be this plastic thing of nachos, these round, over-salted chips, and this, like, weird congealed orange cheese, and you have to dip it in. And, yeah. and the mechanics of the tray were really bad, and, and your chips would break, and it would be terrible. I have to tell you, I was just at a Dodger game, and I that's still there. That's still there, for sure. It's still there, but it's not the only thing there anymore. Now we know, okay, like, there's going to be a veggie burger, or we can get, like, a really good slice of pizza, or we can get a salad if we wanted it. But let's talk about, you know, I, th- I think the majority of food that you're going to be getting at a, at a baseball stadium is not necessarily good for you or, like, diet conscious, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. What to you is the, the best dish of all the stadiums you visited? Something that I think is really, really cool uh, is the fact that you can get big city iconic dishes when you go to the stadium. So you go to Yankee Stadium, you can get a parm eggplant sandwich. You go to Hmm. the Mets game, you can get a Shake Shack burger, you know, and if if you're only coming in town for a few hours, you're only coming to catch a game, you can still get that thing. You can still get like the essential dishes of the city you're visiting. Yeah, and it's really cool and it's, it's helping to elevate the food. These Icons in these restaurants that are brick and mortar outside of the stadium come in and kind of change everything inside of 
the field. It's awesome. Actually, in the in the article, you mentioned some very famous chefs that are opening kind of satellite stands in stadiums. You want to give some examples? Andrew Zimmern just opened a couple places in Kauffman Stadium. So that's kind of cool. He's got a place that's doing skewers. He's got some fun hot dogs. Um, in Atlanta, we've got Linton Hopkins, who has this famous burger. And at the time, they were only selling 24 a night. So you go to the you would go to the restaurant in Atlanta. His original restaurant, you mean? Not in the stadium. Exactly. Yeah. And at 10 p.m., they would say, it's burger time. And then you'd get 24 burgers. And that was it. So people would go there at 6 p.m., start getting cocktails, and they'd have to stay to get, get the, the burger. burger. And then they started doing it at three stalls in the in the Brave Stadium. So you didn't have to wait in line. You could just go to the game, you know, buy a $5 ticket and buy this burger and have the same food experience, but wow. while you're watching nine innings of baseball. It was actually more accessible right. in the stadium than in the original restaurant. Absolutely. All right, so that's the best stuff. What about the weirdest? There's, there's a thing now called nachos on a stick. <laughs> um, and... <laughs> That doesn't um, sound practical at all. It's beef and cheese rolled in crushed Doritos and then deep fried on a stick. And then they serve uh, it with nacho sauce and and sour cream and salsa. So in a way, they make it into a sausage kind of. Right. But it's losing the crunch, right? It's not nachos anymore oh, yeah. at that point. It's like this like mushy, deep fried thing. And it's cool. You know, it's got Doritos and everybody loves Doritos, but... It's not nachos. With, with nachos, you want that crunch. Um, you mentioned hot dogs. Hot dogs. Probably. <laughs> the smile on your face. <laughs> if only people could see it. Hot dogs, probably the classic ballpark food. What is maybe the most interesting? There is one in Baltimore that has crab mac and cheese on top of it. That's interesting. Um, I think my favorite hot dog is not really a hot dog. It's called the churro dog. And it's at the Arizona Diamondback Stadium, and it's a cinnamon churro served hot inside a long chocolate-glazed donut. (laughs) And then it's topped with frozen yogurt to make it a little healthier. (laughs) Not whipped cream, not ice cream, but frozen yogurt. And also chocolate sauce and and caramel sauce. A lot of these, actually, the thing that comes to mind is state fair food. Exactly. Yeah. Actually, in Texas, there's a stand that's called State Fair, F-A-R-E. And so they do things for the novelty aspect of it, like... Um, funnel cake fries. Mm. Um, there's a pulled pork parfait in Milwaukee, which sounds very strange, <laughs> but it's pulled pork and mashed potatoes, and they just layer it up in a cup and top oh. it with chives with a little spoon, and it, it looks just like a yogurt parfait. You can really just see the stadiums thinking more about what's going to get fans interested, what's going to get them tweeting about the games and Instagramming pictures, and how can they make ballpark fair that people are going to remember more than they're going to remember a, a boring baseball game. Yeah, I will check my Twitter or Instagram feed after a ball game, and I'll see as many photos of people's food as I do of the game, sometimes more. Right. Well, here's the thing. I, Like I said, I'm a really big Braves fan, and I was in Atlanta a couple weeks ago, and I dragged all my friends to a game. And the way that I did it was by saying that there was a Waffle House in the stadium now. Sonia Chopra, her survey of the 43 must-eat baseball stadium dishes appeared on the food website Eater. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but coming up, Fight Club author Chuck Palahniuk explains why he loved being coated in raw chicken guts when the Dinner Party download continues.
Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll hear a new song from Destroyer. Plus, Fight Club author Chuck Palahniuk tells us how guys in salmon costumes can change society. Hmm. And speaking of changing society, let's learn some manners, shall we? In the form of our weekly etiquette segment. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and we often invite a celebrity to answer them. But every so often we have our resident experts stop by... And their names are Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning. They're the great-great-grandkids of Manners Sensei Emily Post. She, I gave her a promotion. She's Sensei now. <laughs> co-authors of Emily Post, Etiquette, the 18th edition. And they co-host the podcast Awesome Etiquette. Lizzie and Dan, welcome back. The Etiquette Ninjas. I, I'm like, I know. I was the Etiquette Ninjas. <laughs> we honor her. I dig it. But let's ask you a question that I don't think Emily could have commented upon. It's a bit of a modern problem. Spooky. Uh, summer travel season has just begun. Is it okay to recline your seat if you are sitting in the confines of an airplane's coach class. <laughs> Dan just threw his, <laughs> threw his headphones in the air and walked away. Um, this is such a hot-button issue because, first of all, nobody likes it when the seat is reclined into their space. At the same time, you purchase a seat that has the ability to do that. Yes. <laughs> it's your yes. prerogative. I think during yes. the meal, it's a courtesy to put your seat back up oh, for yeah. the person behind you. I think 100%. that's starting to emerge as a, a, right. a courtesy. But otherwise, deal with it, right? But you are allowed to take your seat. And put it back. You are. You're allowed. And you can't let them divide us. You know, the anger <laughs> should be directed towards the airline. Yeah, they shouldn't be allowed to squeeze us so tightly together that using the seat it is meant to be used is causing pain to the person yes, behind you. Yes, I couldn't yeah. agree more. Well, you know, the one thing worse than getting squeezed in a seat is hearing people talk about <laughs> okay. it. We have questions <laughs> that our listeners want answered. Yes. I'm yes. very excited about this first one. We're going from planes to trains. So here's a question from yes. Kristen in Lexington, Kentucky. Kristen writes... I'm a server on a fine dining dinner train. That wow. sounds amazing. I want to ride on that train. I know. So do I. Uh, I'm a server on a fine dining dinner train, and I constantly run into the issue of couples bickering over which one of them gets the privilege of paying the bill. Mm. It usually ends with one person being upset with me because I didn't hand them the bill. So what's a server to do? Should I always hand the bill to the mail? Or should I just turn around and toss it over my shoulder at them in the hope it falls in the right person's hands? Help. You know, the easy answer here is is put it as close to the middle and not pointing in any one person's direction as you can. Neutral position on neutral the table. Neutral territory. Find that neutral ground. But let me go let me let me take this one step further. How many times do you have to say no or let me before you let them? You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. That's that if if someone says that they're going to take the bill, then you say, "Oh, thank you so much. That's really kind. I'll get it the next time." All right. And you better resolve this cuz you're stuck on a train. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> All right, here's something from Dana in Honolulu, Hawaii, where uh, actually we just started airing in a very nice news time slot on Saturday afternoon. So, wow. hello to everyone on KIPO. Aloha. Dana writes, "Many of us in Honolulu shop at Costco." When buying a large package of apples, I often, if not always, swap out some of the lamer-looking apples for better <laughs> ones in another mm. package. This involves a lot of shuffling and opening and rearranging. Is it rude to trade a bad apple for a good one? Is this an ethics question or an etiquette question? <laughs> it's an ethiquette question. <laughs> yes. And it'd be rude for so you not to try to answer it. I think it's perfectly okay to swap an apple or two, but the second it becomes a project in the produce aisle where you're really deconstructing whole bags and you start <laughs> to become a, make a scene of yourself, I think it starts yeah. to tread into that bad etiquette territory. But okay. 
testing the produce, getting a, a, a good ripe piece of produce or a produce that's just at the in the condition that you'd want it as a, as a part of the pleasure of shopping. And crummy. <laughs> so it's really more of an etiquette question about that moment in the store, not so much getting your fingerprints all over someone else's apple. Right, absolutely. And, I think and that's wash fine. them before you eat them. Yeah. So Dana, it is your right to shuffle some fruit, but when the shuffling becomes a whole Busby <laughs> Berkeley stage show, <laughs> not okay. Take it down a notch. All right. This next question comes from Anonymous. It was sent to us through our website. Anonymous writes, I have a friend who is always fishing for compliments on their hairstyle. My <laughs> honest opinion is that the look, far from being hip, ages them by years. Oh, no. <laughs> Thus far, I've managed <laughs> to avoid the topic, but how long can you politely ignore someone on this issue? Do I eventually have to be honest? If so... How? So this is less about the hair question and more about how long can you avoid a topic without seeming <laughs> so, like a jerk. Totally understand getting frustrated having to avoid the topic, but it's a, I mean, at some point you have to ask yourself, what does it sound like when you then don't avoid the topic? You know, your hairstyle really looks crummy and it ages you by about a decade. Boy, that's a tough recovery. Yeah. yeah, I think this is one of those times where you find what we call the benevolent truth, find whatever positive thing you can say, hey, the color's great, you know, whatever it is, <laughs> yeah. and you let it be that. Particularly in yeah. the face of excitement and enthusiasm about Definitely it. Definitely not. Like, yeah. If the person's really asking for your opinion, I think you look for a cue that your honesty will be received. If the person really looking for help and advice, or are they really looking to have their enthusiasm yeah. reflected back to them? What about applying? I, I look at this question. I think about like a spectrum of relationships. If you're very, very That's close to too. me, and I have to yeah. be next to you constantly, well, then maybe I have to really be honest with you. <laughs> if I have to see your hair all the time. <laughs> now, now, if you're a middle level friend. <laughs> You know, lie. Your hair looks great. This is why white lies are invented. Well, well I will agree with everything there except, except the, lie. the white lie. The, 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 yeah. There's a benevolent no. truth that's somewhere that's dancing around that white lie. Oh, somewhere. man. But it's okay, Brendan. <laughs> I get the picture. You don't like my hair. <laughs> Here's something from Elia in Minnesota. Elia writes, if I snort when I laugh, do I say excuse me like a burp? Dan, you and your fiance both do that. You totally both do that. Dan has picked up I've his picked fiance's up a snort laugh. laugh. It's really funny. Oh no! Does would do you wish that he would apologize for it? Constantly? I say, I say, maybe if it's a real a real honk and snort, I would say, oh, excuse me. Afterwards, you might. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't be um, embarrassed. Uh, super about embarrassed it. about no, it. No, exactly. No. It's it's yeah. not um, it's not vulgar. And isn't there a difference between a mannerism and you know something that you can perhaps control or stand up from the table before? Doing. Yes. And also in the context of laughter, this, there's already a bouquet of noise and your snort is but one flower as opposed to a burp, which just comes out of nowhere like a weed. Where did you come from today? Yeah, Seriously, this is spectacular. I drank coffee after noon. I don't know. Let's get out of here before things turn any more poetic. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post sending. Thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. You're most welcome. Oh, of course. Anytime. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post sending co-authors of Emily Post Etiquette, the 18th edition. You can also hear them on their weekly podcast called Awesome Etiquette. Like our own show, it is part of the Infinite Guest Podcast Network. And folks, if you want your etiquette questions answered by the Post or by celebrities we somehow managed to talk into it, send your questions to us via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Time for Chattering Class, where we're schooled by an expert on some fascinating topic. The topic this week, pranks. And our teacher is Chuck Palahniuk. He's written a slew of best-selling books, but his most notorious is probably his first, Fight Club. 
It's about a timid white-collar worker who, along with the charismatic Tyler Durden, helps break other men out of their dull consumerist lives by forming a club where they beat each other up. The club later morphs into a kind of neo-terrorist group. In the late 90s, both the book Fight Club and the movie adaptation were huge cult hits, and Chuck just started serializing a sequel in comic book form. It's appropriately called Fight Club 2, and Chuck, welcome. Thank you, Rico. So those unfamiliar with your background might wonder why we are talking to you, of all people, about the subject of pranks. Would you please explain the connection between pranks and Fight Club? A lot of Fight Club, especially the second part of the book, was based on the Cacophony Society, which was a group of people based in San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, Los Angeles, yep. uh, who organized enormous pranks and spectacles to entertain themselves and to kind of shock the world around them. And you participated, yes? I did, yes. For how long? Or can you... You're never really out of it. And so many of the things are costumed, like the Santa Rampage, where you have 2,000 people all answering to the name Santa Claus and all dressed <laughs> as Santa Claus that there's always a possibility that I am still one of those 2,000. Does any one prank stand out for you? My favorite one was probably La Art Mall. You know, every city has kind of a pretentious gallery district, and one night a month, all the new shows open. And here in Portland, it's the first Thursday of every month, and the Cacophony Society found one gallery that was going belly up and got the use of that gallery for the very last first Thursday and stocked it with the most profane inane, worthless art that we could find in thrift stores and got the worst mimes and served the worst red wine and then huckstered all of these art mavens to come to our gallery as part of the big walk. Was the reaction one of shock or kind of like, hmm, how this has importance? It was that kind of Andy Warhol undecidability where they're not really sure whether they're being put on or not and they weren't going to leave until they decided and so eventually everyone was in our gallery wow we would set them horrible tasks everyone would be given a very strange word that they had to use four times in conversation I remember oh. one woman trying to use the word phallocentric over and over <laughs> before she could leave but here's the thing you know in satire they say that there's an object of attack that high-quality satire is attacking something worthy of being attacked. What was the object of attack there? Art goers who think they know what they're talking about or galleries that feed on them? It was more to do with the scene itself where people would pretend to be interested in art, but really they were just trying to get <laughs> with other people who were pretending to be interested in art. And so to kind of sucker those people in and to you know, have them sort of work their scene in a place that had nothing to do with real art... What to you is the importance of this kind of pranking? Is it, is it more than just watching people freak out? I mean, On another level, it was uh, this permission to be a very large public person and to be that mime that was grabbing people off the street and bringing them into the gallery. And it was in a, way, a way of serving people by providing them with a spectacle, with an experience that they would go home and talk about for the rest of their lives. Why was that important to you, though? You know, it's like giving them a gift. Uh, to sort of create an unexplainable thing that is not just readily dismissed, that people have to discuss with other people in order to assimilate as part of their experience. That's interesting that you would say, think of it as a gift, because I think when people think of pranks, they think of somebody being the victim of a prank. You know, my favorite cacophony events couldn't be construed as victimizing anyone. There were kind of more mean-spirited things. For instance, they would uh, crucify this gigantic... Easter bunny outside the front of the Albina Baptist 
church on Easter oh, morning. no. And they would hold a huge passion play around this crucified bunny as parishioners were coming and going. Yeah. And that's not something that I took part in because I couldn't get into that, especially on a day that was very important to them. Have you ever actually found yourself caught up in a prank that you did not initiate? The very first one. I saw a flyer for something called Voodoo Weddings that was going to be held at a, an ancient tiki bar here in Portland. They were going to hold this tropical musical festival, and they were going to marry people in these, quote-unquote, voodoo wedding ceremonies. And I got there early, and I staked out a table with my friends. And then all of these very trendy, again, these very hip, slick, Jordache jeans people showed up and kind of took over the whole scene. But during the high point of the voodoo weddings, the nerdy geeky cacophony people started to throw raw chicken guts Ah. into the crowd as part of the voodoo wedding. And it was the opposite of the movie Carrie. Instead of the cool kids dumping viscera on the dweeb kid, it was the dweeb kid throwing viscera on all the cool kids, including me. And I was so thrilled and so impressed that these people had fooled me and that my drink was ruined and that I was spattered with blood and that everyone around me was screaming. And I just had to be part of this group. There's an interesting concept that others have brought up, which is that when you are pranked or when you witness somebody being pranked, you kind of see the world in a different way. Very often, pranks are taking something that you're familiar with and suddenly twisting it and sort of shocks you out of complacency. Right, sort of subverting an expectation in the moment. And one of the most basic things I love to do is to take my dog to an off-leash park. I have a little Boston Terrier, and I will take this very realistic severed hand that has a bone sticking out of the wrist, and it's covered in blood. Fake blood, I'm assuming. Yes, please. (laughs) And my dog is trained to fetch this thing. And the reaction on people's faces as they see this adorable dog run by with a gory hand in its mouth is priceless. There have been I know that you've done a lot of uh, research about pranks. What's your favorite prank from all time? The wonderful pranks have are the ones that have been kind of uh, adapted into media. For years, uh, the Cacophony Society would dress as these giant salmon, and they would swim upstream during the San Francisco Beta Breakers run. For those who don't know, this is in San Francisco where people dress in costume and run to the bay, right? Right. And and running against this huge flood of people would be these giant salmon that would be leaping and trying to make their way in the opposite direction. <laughs> and the wonderful thing about that is that it's been co-opted as a Nike advertising campaign. And Nike now pays people to dress as salmon and run against the tide. And so if you do a fantastic prank it does get co-opted by the mainstream culture, and it lives forever. That's interesting that you'd find that good, though. I mean, it seems like it's such a punky kind of outsidery thing to do to pull pranks. You're swimming against the tide, and then the mainstream tide co-ops you. Isn't that a bad thing? What's the, the gain of that? That you got to write the rules. You got to make the game up, and everyone's playing your game. Oh, man. And nothing feels better. <laughs> nothing feels better. Author Chuck Palahniuk, his comic book sequel to Fight Club, and not surprisingly called Fight Club 2, is on sale now. And folks, that concludes this encore broadcast of the Dinner Party Download, but don't be sad. No. There are hundreds of hours of DPD material just waiting to be downloaded for the low, low price of free if you subscribe to our podcast. 
And you can do that via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Jackson Musker produces the show. Our associate producer is Nina Patak. Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer. Chris Clark engineered. Kristen Coons is our intern. Our executive producer is Larissa Anderson. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to dig on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Canadian pop iconoclast Dan Behar goes by the name Destroyer. Here's a tune off his album Poison Season. It's called Dream Lover. Bon appétit. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. And I- the captain has turned off the seatbelt signs. Relax and enjoy the flight. <sighs> Please, excuse me. Would you be so kind as to not recline your seats? No, you f***ing We're allowed to recline our seats, so f*** off! Man, people are so impolite on planes. It's ridiculous.